name's John. I'm one of the assistant pastors here at City, and it's a privilege to be with you here tonight to be able to open up God's Word. We're continuing in our series in 2 Corinthians, and we are in chapter 6 this week. Uh, we will uh, discuss the first 13 verses. As is our custom here, I'll, after I read the text, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and if you can respond with thanks be to God. So hear now the word of the Lord from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through 13. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors, and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished, and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us. But you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, Lord, we thank you now for this, your word. Our Father, would you be pleased to use it to speak to these, your children. Lord, that we might know you and the power of your resurrection. That we might see your great love out upon us in Jesus, Lord, that our hearts might be filled with that same love towards you, towards your word, towards one another. So Lord, be at work even this evening by your spirit, and we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. When was the last time someone made a significant attempt to persuade you about something? that they thought was very important. Can you remember? Can you think of a time? It could have been someone uh, persuading you, right, to try and get you to buy something. It was really important to them that you bought this thing from them. Could be someone trying to get your vote. Um, if this has never happened to you, and I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but hang out a little bit after service and plan on going out to eat with a few folks, and you might get persuaded by someone 
as to where you should go. I don't know, it tends to happen, doesn't it? Maybe in the evening service from time to time, there's a group that goes out a little bit, and, and sometimes there's some people trying to persuade others, right, that we got to go to Noodle Heads, or we got to go somewhere else, right? People try and persuade you, hey, Mark, how are you doing? People try and persuade you for all kinds of things. Mark's our resident expert in evangelism. And uh, he is, uh, we could take a lesson in appeal from Mark, let me just say that, uh, as to how to appeal to people for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I'm sure this has happened to you. Maybe you have a time in your mind, well, when was the last time someone tried to appeal to you about something and they stood nothing to gain in return? They weren't going to make any money. They weren't going to get your vote. They weren't going to get what they wanted. They weren't going to get any of those things. In fact, maybe to the contrary. Maybe it could lead to more suffering for them. Maybe it could lead to more persecution. Well, that's what the Apostle Paul is doing in his appeal to them. He wasn't appealing to the church in Corinth because he stood anything to gain. He wasn't worried about their money. He wasn't worried about their vote. He wasn't worried about where they were going out to eat. He wasn't worried about any of those things. No. He was worried about their souls. He was worried about who they were before the one true and living God. So we're going to work through this text. We're going to this text, we're going to look at this appeal, and as we start, right, you see in verse 1, uh, this idea of working together with him then, and that then tells us that this text is building on something, and uh, Jim already pointed that out, right? We just saw an appeal, and if you were here last week, and I was not, but I know Pastor Nauman preached at the end of chapter 5, and so you looked at verse 20, where we read these words, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God-making his appeal through us. So Paul understood that God was making an appeal through him. And then he goes on to implore people, right, to implore the Corinthians to be reconciled to God, right, uh, to be brought into right relationship with him. Right? Uh, and then he goes on to tell them, the famous verse 21, right, that for our sake, that is, uh, the people of God, God made him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is imputation. That's a big word. This is the great exchange. This is God saying, I will send my son and he will take all your sins. And I will give you all of his righteousness. Right? So be reconciled. Come back into right relationship with me based on what he's done for you. It's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. And so Paul is appealing to that. He's building on that now using very similar language. But he says we appeal to you, working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. And that's what we're going to dwell on a little bit tonight. Paul's appeal to not receive the grace of God in vain. And I think we'll do that in three different ways. Uh, we'll look at what I'm going to call the urgency of this matter. Right? Uh, Paul is very forthright uh, that this is urgent. We will look at some of the details of the matter. When he goes on to right, uh, do what he's doing in these middle verses, 3 through 10 here, and, and talking about 
all the things he's gone through and why he's going through them. And then we'll look at our hearts in this matter. Our hearts before God and how we respond to this. So Paul starts off, right, the urgency of the matter. And in verse 2, we see uh, this famous verse. Perhaps you've heard it quoted, and it's elsewhere in the New Testament in different ways. Um, but this idea that now is the day of salvation. Uh, the Apostle Paul here, uh, verse 2, when he says 4, he says he's actually quoting from Isaiah chapter 49. And I put that in your additional scriptures. And I'd like to read those verses for us. Isaiah 49, verses 8 through 12, right? This idea that now is the day of salvation. Isaiah 49, uh, just a little bit of context, a little bit of background. We're in the latter part of Isaiah. And in the latter part of Isaiah, if you didn't know it, there are what are, what's called four servant songs. Okay? There's one in Isaiah 42. There's another one in Isaiah 49. There's another one in Isaiah 50. And if you know anything from Isaiah, or if you know just a few things from Isaiah, you probably know the famous verses from the end of 52 and into 53, right? Um, that's the most well-known passage, uh, maybe not in Isaiah, but certainly of the servant songs, right? Uh, so these are these servant songs that point to God's suffering servant, right? So that's the context of this passage, and it started at the beginning of the chapter. We're just going to read these five verses. Uh, so starting in verse 8, thus says the Lord, in a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out. To those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. In this passage in Isaiah, the prophet is telling the people that the hope for Israel is not Israel itself. Right? That their hope is not what they are going to do or accomplish, but it is rather one who is coming. Look at verse 8. Right? I will keep you. It's as if God, by the Holy Spirit through the prophet Isaiah, is speaking to someone here. I will keep you, and I will give you Right? A person as a covenant. And I think we know who that person is. Right? That person is Jesus. He's speaking of the Son, the true Israel of God, God's suffering servant, that God is going to right, keep him and give him to fulfill his covenant. He's going to do all kinds of things that we read about here. One, he's going to establish the land. He's going to set prisoners free, uh, which is consistent with Isaiah 61. We see that quoted in Luke chapter 4. Uh, he's going to bring light to darkness. And I never really noticed it until I slowed down and studied this time. Isn't there a lot of Psalm 23-like language in there? Verses 9 and 10 about sitting down in green grass and being fed and people being thirsty and not being thirsty anymore. There's a lot of Psalm 23, the good shepherd-type language in there. 
in verse 11, right? The mountains are going to become roads, right? Meaning there will be access. It will be easy to get uh, to God, right? Um, and people will come from far and wide. Right? If this was today, right, it would be like all the potholes will be filled. <laughs> and there'll be an extra lane in the tunnels, and the tunnel monster will be permanently slayed, right? Where everybody slows before they get in there. Like, you'll be able to go anywhere, anytime you want. That is what's being, the picture that's being painted here, that people will be able to get to God easily. And why is that? Because the sun is going to come, right? And he is going to come and do what they could not do for themselves. He's talking about this future day of salvation. And people will come, right? And it says from, uh, uh, where is it? The north. I don't think we get all four directions, the north and the west, and those from the land of Syene, which is Egypt. Right? So people will be coming from everywhere. The nations will be pouring in. And Paul quotes this, and he says that this is what you're seeing right now. Right? That the good news of Jesus Christ is being proclaimed. Right? And I'm writing to people like you in Corinth, who are Greeks and had nothing to do with Jesus had nothing to do with God's people, and yet, look, here I am. He has sent me. He has given your, or his word to you, and people are pouring in in droves. It's a beautiful picture of the kingdom. He's saying today is the day of salvation. I think Paul's using that in two ways. First, generally, that that day has dawned, right? That that era has begun, right? And that era consists until this day. And it will until Jesus returns. So first, it's very general. That, that era, the era when Jesus has come, when God's people have been redeemed, it has begun. Right? Christ's work on the cross has been accomplished. He has been resurrected from the dead. And the nations are pouring in. But it also means something specific. And I don't want to let this go by. It also means that today is the day. It doesn't mean we're just in the era. It means today is the day of salvation. So in the words of Hebrews 4, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Tomorrow is promised to no one. Jesus could come back tonight for all of us. Or he could come back just for you. And just for me. We don't know. Today is the day of salvation, but Christ has come, so there is an urgency to this matter. We are not to put off. We are not to say, I'll believe when I get older. I'll believe after I get so-and-so in order. I'll believe after I have fun doing all these things that I really want to do because I know those aren't really compatible with Christianity. I'll believe then. Paul's saying, no, believe now. Take heart now in the good news of Jesus Christ that he has come and taken your place on the cross. And he offers you all of his righteousness in return. That's the urgency of the matter. Now some details. What is Paul doing in verses 3 through 10? Well, one thing's pretty obvious. He's defending his ministry, isn't he? Paul thinks that his character is very significant in his gospel witness. And it is. So he's going to great lengths here to defend his ministry. Now he's doing that because people are assaulting his ministry. They're attacking his ministry. So in verse 3, we, we see him say, right, that there are 
I have put no obstacles in anyone's way. You can't find any fault in my ministry, he says. And in verse 4 through 10, he goes on with a litany of characteristics of his ministry, right, to show its character and its resemblance. And I would say its resemblance to the ministry of Christ himself. Look at the things that he mentions. Doesn't it sound like the ministry of Christ? See, the false teachers that were getting to the church in Corinth and some of the people at the church in Corinth were saying that Paul wouldn't be suffering all these things if he was a real apostle. And those who were with him, truly these people can't be sent from God. If God was with them, then they would be experiencing blessing. That they would have his favor in visible, tangible ways. But that wasn't Paul's lot in ministry. They're saying, right, are we the real deal? Or Paul's saying, rather, are we the real deal or is it them? Stop and think about it. Whose ministry looks more like Jesus? Is it Paul? Or is it the false apostles who are pushing a false gospel? If it's them, then ignore what Paul has to say. Right? That's what he's saying to the church in Corinth. If, if, if they're the real ones, then don't listen to me. But guess what? If it is me, if Paul is a real apostle and his words are true, then you can't ignore the writings. You can't ignore God's word. Church in Corinth, you can't ignore my visits to you. You can't ignore my first letter. You can't ignore the two lost letters that we don't have. And you can't ignore this second letter. You can't ignore the things that I'm saying to you because they're from God. If I'm from God, then they are from God in his apostolic witness and ministry. We'll come back to that. But there are some implications for us, I think. Now, in the 21st century, and I guess I'll say by God's grace, we don't experience a lot of these things in ministry. You guys could be looking at me and Matt and Jim and others like, well, hey, wait, that doesn't look like you guys. <laughs> you're not suffering all that. Maybe, maybe your ministry is fake. Well, people live in different eras and different times, and they experience different things. Uh, but let's ask ourselves, all of us, right, pastor or otherwise, right, uh, and look in verses 4 through 5. Are we willing to suffer as we minister, if God calls us to? It doesn't mean our entire ministry will be full of suffering, but are we willing to suffer in ministry for the sake of others? Right? Are we willing to endure? Are we willing to uh, undergo afflictions and hardships and calamities, beating? something we see here, at least not often. Imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights. Huh. We should ask ourselves, are we, are we willing to undergo those things for the sake of the gospel? And secondly, we should ask ourselves, right, are our ministries marked by many of the things we read in the next verse? Uh, and this is uh, as convicting to me as it uh, may be to many of you, by purity by knowledge, by patience, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by genuine love, by truthful speech, by the power of God. We can repent of the ways in which we fall short. We can ask God to have mercy upon us, to pour out his spirit in us, to mold us and shape us in ways uh, that testify to the authenticity of the message 
that we proclaim. But we can also praise God that I think uh, the, the message, and Paul is getting to this, is even more important than the character of the minister. Not an excuse, but Paul, uh, if we ask the question, so what is he doing? He's defending his ministry. Well, why is he doing it? Well, I think he's doing it so people will recognize the authenticity and the authority of the Word of God. And in particular, Paul's letters. Right? Because what he has to say to them, what God is saying to them through him, is, is more important than anything he actually does or doesn't. But they need to see a true gospel witness so that they will believe those things. But the message is even more significant than his character. And that message is the message of the gospel, yes, that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. That he ascended into heaven, that he's seated at the right hand of God, that he ever lives to make intercession for us. It is all those things. And let us keep these things first when we, when we uh, share the gospel with people. But it is more than that. Think about his letters to the church at Corinth alone. Think of the themes that Paul addresses. I wrote some down. Divisions. Lawsuits. Sexual immorality. Marriage. Singleness. Divorce. Food. Idolatry. Worship. Relationships. Gifts. Holy Spirit. Lord's Supper, love, prophecy, tongues, money, giving, and more. He has all those things to say in just those two little letters. God has more to say to his people than just that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. As important as that is, God would have us live right? in certain ways that are for our good and bring him glory and honor. There is so much here. So not only is Paul's ministry and message authentic, but it possesses the very authority of God. All of it. That brings us to our last thought, and that's our hearts. No. Our hearts towards uh, this message of Paul uh, towards the urgency of this matter, uh, towards some of the details of the matter, right? In verse 11, we see that Paul says his heart is wide open, and he asks the church at Corinth to widen their hearts also. How's your heart? How's your heart? If I'm honest, mine's not always doing as good as it should be. If I'm honest, even this last week, was not a real great week. Sometimes we don't guard our hearts the way we should. Sometimes our hearts are not open to the things of God. Sometimes they're not open to the body of Christ and to one another. So let's ask ourselves a few questions. Are we, are we guarding our hearts, first of all? to this message of the gospel and to all the things that God has to say in his words towards us as people, are we guarding our hearts so that right, they're soft and tender and they're ready to receive what he has for us? Proverbs 4, 23, different translations says, guard your heart, right? for out of it flow the, 
the springs of life or the issues of life. God tells us very clearly we need to guard our hearts. And the heart, of course, is bigger than you know, that little organ inside that's, that's pumping blood. It's, it's who we are at our core. It's all of us. So that's why Paul will say things like Philippians 4, I think it's verse 8, right? He's, he's talking about our minds, and he says whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, think about those things, right? So guarding our hearts right, involves laying them before God every day and asking them to expose the darkness, to expose the sin, to keep our hearts soft, to keep them tender. Right? It involves what we're thinking about, right? What we're pouring into ourselves, what we're, what we're reading, right? Um, the, the show, it, it does involve all those things. Are we, are we before God? Uh, Lord, forgive us for the ways in which we're not getting before you each day and asking you right, to just soften our hearts towards you, towards what you have to say to us, towards one another. Lord, help us. How is your heart towards God's word? Especially towards God's word that goes against the cultural currents of our day. It is so easy, it is so tempting to avoid certain things in God's word because we don't understand them or because they're unpopular or because we know that if we bring them up, uh, people will look down upon us, they'll ridicule us, they'll, uh, they'll call us all kinds of evil things. Are we acting as if certain parts are just outdated or they can't apply today? 2 Timothy 3.16 is also in your scriptures. All scripture is God-breathed. It's breathed out by God. It's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. That the man or woman of God may be complete or competent or perfect. Ready for every good work. Are we we guarding our hearts towards God and toward his word and toward one another? There's a a wonderful G.K. Chesterton quote. And, you know, the more you learn about this guy, like, did he really say all these things? I mean, how can he have said this many things? Some of these surely are, are uh, uh, what's the right word? Um, apocalyptic? Apocryphal, that's the word, yes. And surely some of these are, are like that. But um, he said something like, if you take God's word, I think he was talking about the Gospels in general take the gospels or take God's word, right, and take out all the parts you don't believe, you haven't believed in God. You've only believed in yourself. How are our hearts? And are we, are we cultivating right, our hearts right, towards God each day in prayer, right, towards God each day in his word, towards one another? And I, and I don't want to underestimate that part. I don't want to underestimate, uh, you know, hardness of heart, you know, towards a brother or sister in Christ or over an issue or over something and the, the way that can affect you just for, for days. What, what does Jesus say? And I think it's Matthew chapter 5 when someone's trying to offer a gift. He says, no, no, no. First go. Be reconciled to your brother. Our hearts, when we're, when we're estranged from one another, the church... They keep us from being able to worship and fellowship with God. How's your heart? Mine needed this. At the end of this week, my heart really needed to be exposed for all the darkness that's still in it. 
for all the things it, it, it wants and seeks after, that, 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 that keeps it hard towards God's word or towards someone else, that keeps me from not seeing the urgency in this matter, that keeps me from not wanting to suffer for the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ or for others. Paul asked this question here. He asked this appeal. He, he, he asked us to not receive the grace of God in vain. He tells us today is the day of salvation. Don't harden your hearts, right? Guard your hearts, right? And would it be that our hearts right, are wide open towards our Lord? towards his word, towards one another, that our hearts would be wide open towards him as his is towards us. Folks, he's held nothing back. He sent even his only son. And I know that your heart has probably been hurt before in many different and and memorable, memorable ways that you don't even want to remember. Sometimes that keeps us, right? From wanting to love others and from wanting to be heard again. I want you to remember that God's heart has been open. God will heal all the brokenness in our hearts. And if we as God's people would open our hearts not just towards him, not just towards his word, not just towards one another, but towards the people out there who don't believe this good news of Jesus who don't see the urgency of the matter, if we would open our hearts towards them, and God would even break our hearts, and we would still try and love them, what picture do you think they would see? And folks, that might be the only picture would that our hearts would be open, open towards God, open towards the things he's doing in our lives, open towards one another, and open towards a lost and dying world that needs his salvation every bit as much as we do.